Radio crew, let's get to work. Hope everybody's well and, of course, having a fantastic week. This week's guest is Miss Katie Fasina. Katie is an Australian Olympic weightlifter who has competed in multiple national and world championships, including the Commonwealth Games, where she won the silver medal. Katie lets us in on her whole life journey from how to perform at a high level to balancing the busy life of an athlete. Expect to learn the mindset mistakes Katie made when leading up to elite competition, the differences between Olympic weightlifting and other forms of resistance training, how Katie balanced her athlete ambition with family commitments, the mistakes Katie observes people make when attempting Olympic lifts, the difference between developing strength and power, why caffeine may be useful in boosting anaerobic performance in and out of the gym. Crew, ever since I became interested in throwing pieces of iron around from a young age, I've come across many people like Katie that make moving very large weights seem easy and fluent. I've always been fascinated by the different methodologies people use to become stronger and faster. So for me, the conversation with Katie gave me insight into a style of resistance training I realistically know very little about. It's clear to me that Olympic weightlifting is very different to powerlifting and bodybuilding, but it's even clearer to me that Katie really knows her craft. So crew, let's delve into the conversation and absorb all of her valuable lessons. Please welcome the strong and powerful Katie Fasina. Thank you. How are you? Very good. I had a challenge with somebody that I work with recently, and that challenge was to start a conversation with somebody without saying, how are you? And anyway, this challenge went on for quite a number of weeks, and it was surprisingly difficult to do. So every time that I saw this person, I had to come up with some other way of starting the conversation. You know how when you talk to some people, it's always like, oh, how are you? And then the other person goes, good, how are you? And then you actually get to what you want to ask them. So now that we've done the how are yous, I know that you throw some weights around and I know that you throw them around in, you throw very heavy weights around, probably much heavier than I could probably manage. Can you tell us a little bit about your sport and where you've been with it and how you got into it, please? Um, so I do Olympic, Olympic weightlifting. Just recently retired, but I was doing Olympic weightlifting at a elite level for about twelve years. Um, and in those time, in that time, I um, made multiple world championships: um, Oceanas, Nationals, Commonwealth records, com- um, Commonwealth championships. Probably my biggest achievement would have been going to Commonwealth Games in twenty eighteen and won the silver medal. And you know, twice had an opportunity to go to Olympics, but just certain things happened that got in the way especially with 2020 having COVID and things and being one of the athletes that lost their opportunity to qualify because of COVID. And then after the birth of my second son, I decided it was time to retire. It's unfortunate that COVID happened when it did, but you know, you've know you already accomplished so much and so much of a dream that many people probably currently have. Like You've competed at a level that many people could only dream of competing at. Talk to us a little bit about, and, and again, big congratulations for, um, to you for being able to go that far and, and all the dedication and the sacrifice and all of the things that I know that that would take. I'm interested in your preparation. So obviously, and I, I mean, yeah, I used to be a 
I used to be a personal trainer, still qualified personal trainer, but I'm not practicing. And I, I guess one of the of the two things that I always think about when I'm thinking about sport is nutrition and the training itself. Talk to us a little bit about the preparations that you had to go through. What did a typical day in the life of Katie Fasina look like in preparation leading up to those elite events? Was it as boring and um, as sacrificed as we could probably imagine? <laughs> um, yes and no. So I think... You know, when we when you look at like elite level athletes, people have the assumption that they like live in an institute and they just like sleep, eat, train, repeat all day, every day. And yes, that is sometimes that a way for athletes, but then there are athletes like myself who still had to work, um, still had like a had a child like mid career and had to also balance family life as well. So and again, just like the first I know, say five years of my career it was probably like easy living, just the, just the typical cliche PE student at university and just training around university and stuff. So, you know, getting up in the morning, training, going to classes, training in the afternoon. I was based in Hobart, but then I moved to Melbourne. So obviously that, you know, sort of amped things up a little bit. And then um, after I, when I was at university, I felt pregnant. And then when I moved back home, I think that, and after the birth of my first son in 2016, I think that's when my training actually really took off. Um, I moved back home and I had my degree and everything, and I really wanted to make Commonwealth Games. And then from basically 2016, 2018 would be the time that I think, even though I was a, like a, a single mum at the time, that's where I probably was at, actually at my most elite. And a day then would be, I trained in a week, nine sessions a week. Um, some of those days were double days. Um, usually would I also had a job as a PE teacher and I was working part-time. Um, so ideally I'd get up and train before work. I uh, would go to work, train in the afternoon at 4 p.m., so always at 4 p.m. But then I guess, you know, again, I didn't have that normal lifestyle that people think. So I was working, um, I had a child. So even like, you know, there were certainly in about, uh, three months into after my son was born in my training, I started to get a lot of anxiety about that I was spending way too much time away from him. So I actually did like I started doing a lot of my sessions after he went to bed, especially when he started sleeping all the way through. So some of my sessions actually went at 10 p.m. at night and I finished at midnight, So and which is not like your typical and I wouldn't recommend it and not your typical like training regime. So there were times where I would have to fit my training around my life and because I was dedicated in making that that goal, there were times where I was training past midnight because that was the only time that I could do it. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, that takes sacrifice to a whole new level. I don't know what it is but like whenever I'm training, I um, can't train in the afternoons anymore. I used to do that a lot, like, you know, the sort of four or five o'clock and then actually when I was a lot younger I used to train um, yeah, sometimes eight, nine, ten o'clock, sometimes even like, you know, midnight in those like 24-hour gyms and stuff like that. But um, for whatever reason, like psychologically, I find that I have to do it in the morning when I've got the most, I guess, mental capacity to do it now because I just can't, yeah, can't uh, like after a day of working or podcasting or a combination of different things that I'm doing, like, yeah, I just don't have the, the mental energy. So you're there as, you know, a mother you know, managing the extreme responsibilities of having a child at the same time, you know, you're still having to try to find time to, to sneak in those training sessions. But at the same time, it's not like sneaking a training session in just to get it in for the sake of health. Like you're literally trying to compete 
at the highest level. So mm. I'm interested in how how did you handle the mindset and what was your mindset in that situation? So, you know, <laughs> what did you have to focus on? What did you tell yourself in the moment when you were going in the freezing cold in the middle of winter, you know, to the gym or wherever you went to to lift, you know, hundreds of kilos up and down multiple times? I think ideally like it was more I had a goal and that was to make Commonwealth Games and I was actually like I was close. It was like it was in arm's reach and I knew it was achievable and I knew that I had to be doing what I was doing to get there and there was absolutely no way. Um, certainly and it sort of goes a bit off track but I think ha- being a parent and um, after Gabe was born, uh, I think my perspective on life really changed as well and he definitely became a huge motivator for me. Like I, and there was this real great personal story like, you know, mother trying to get to elite level again after pregnancy and things like that and just being a part of that story was very motivating. And I think just that having that extra responsibility for somebody else and having this huge life change because, again, there was a breakdown in my personal life where I ended up, you know, raising um, I was raising my son on my own. And just going through that struggle and also being a bit proud of myself as well and just having this like new means to life like um, and that sort of translated into my training as well. I, I sort of appreciated my training more and I wanted to be a better person and I wanted to be a better athlete and I wanted to be able to provide this like be this great role model to my child and that became a huge motivator for me was that I was doing it for myself but there was an element that I was doing it for him too because we were going through a big you know a life that was struggling with life and things like that and this was just my my way of just, you know, bringing myself out of it so I could become a better person and that really made me train a lot harder and I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I was, there were times I was just training at 10 o'clock at night because I had to do it and I was determined and it wasn't just for the sport but it was for me as well and for my own little family. Yeah, so, you know, that I mean that in itself must have felt incredibly empowering as a single mother to realise that, you know, you were doing things that – First of all, not many people would have the mental capacity to be able to do. And second of all, you know, that this, the second part that you mentioned there around, you know, making the family that you had, you and your son, you know, extremely proud of and, and being a part of that story kind of is like a self-fulfilling empowerment. What about the mistakes? Did you find yourself, because it can't have just been all rainbows and, yeah, I'm motivated because, you know, part of this story and you're empowered by it because yeah that I've been around long enough to know that there's always a a double-edged sword um, when it comes to the mental game of things how did you did you make any mistakes do you think when it came to the mental game of things so for example you know were you perhaps do you think too dedicated in some ways that you sacrifice some of your well-being in other ways you know that's a real common theme talking to to some athletes, do you think you made any mistakes? Um, if you're looking back at it, do you oh. think you could have improved your self-care or improved, you know, any of those mm-hmm. things that may have just given you that that slight edge to move forward again? Oh, yeah, definitely. Heaps of mistakes um, right through, like even just at the beginning and things. And I think like looking back now, definitely like the first mistake I would have done in the first five years of my career was just like, you know, I started when I was 19 until I was 20, you know, 24. Between that age, it's like, yeah, I'm young. I wasn't in pain. So I was just like smashing the weights, smashing training. And it was all good at the time, but certainly in the last, the second half of my career, all that smashing the weights and sort of training irresponsibly because I could just do it. Little overuse injuries and stuff like that were coming through. And 
you know, I look back at now at my career and also like my mental health, like being someone who had like very high anxiety and had to be a perfectionist. And, you know, there were days where you wouldn't train very well and your whole world would fall apart. And, you know, I think that was something that really was something that I struggled with a lot was when I didn't have a good day, it would impact the rest of the, the rest of my, the rest of my day and um, impact my mental health. And also just things like, you know, not appreciating recovery as much as I should have done. Um, and having this like really toxic mentality that if someone was, tra- if someone, if I wasn't training, then someone else would, would be somewhere else. And, <laughs> you know, not allowing myself to have a break when I probably needed it. And, and, you know, as well, like, I think, you know, when you look at uh, an athletic career and you look at when it comes to careers, your working career, your athletic career, parenthood career, all that sort of stuff, your athletic career is like your shortest out of all the careers. That's your shortest time when you're actually an athlete. And maybe I sometimes think about it that, you know, there were opportunities where maybe I could have gone somewhere and been like more of a full-time athlete, but I sort of stayed where I was comfortable or, you know, I went to Melbourne, but I went to Melbourne for university, not for not for weightlifting. So if I had my time again, I could have, could have maybe had put myself in a position where I could have been a full-time athlete and taken, taken care of myself more knowing that I'd only have 10 years of this career. Like you don't really think about it, that this, this time of your life of being mm. an elite athlete is going to end and 10 years isn't that long mm. and grasping at the time of my best performance and my best years as, a, as an athlete, maybe being a little bit more selfish and putting that first maybe I could have gone a bit further but then again at the same time in my life I'm very I probably wouldn't have had all the other successes that I've had in my personal life but yeah I think that was one thing I look back at that maybe I could have when I was in my early 20s taken a risk a little bit more and thought about well this career is only gonna be for 10 years I might as well give everything I possibly can to make it a little bit easier for me as well yeah that um that mentality that you mentioned is an interesting one around you know when some when when you're not training somebody else is and i've actually fallen to that trap myself obviously nowhere near to the same level um that you have but uh i i definitely know what it's like to be thinking yeah like if i don't do this now somebody else is getting me ahead and what would be interesting to me is like is to know okay if i didn't have that mentality how much further would i have gotten or was that partially responsible for me getting as far as I did because for me I don't know what it was like that somehow motivates or motivated me to kind of um yeah continue to to thrive and be competitive was this idea that yeah like somebody else is yeah like when I'm sleeping somebody else is working out but there is that toxic component of it as you mentioned which is by thinking like that you're not really considering yourself first. Like you're not really cons- – like you're thinking about the other people and going – you're worried about what they're doing to an extent. You're thinking about what they're doing and and then measuring yourself all the time against that sort of – that measuring stick. So I just think that's probably where, yeah, for me that mentality is interesting yeah. because – it can be motivating, but again, it's that double-edged sword as we as we spoke about before in terms of mentality. I'm interested, Katie. Like I'm just having a yeah, little bit of a look behind you there at your awesome. I don't even know what lift that is, but you're holding what looks to be a very heavy weight above yeah. your head. What was it that drew you to Olympic weightlifting? Like, what is it about that sport that's different? I mean, because 
these days, you know, you roll onto Instagram or any of these social media sites and a lot of the guys and gals are all about, you know, aesthetics, how they look in the mirror, how they look in their favorite dress, all this sort of stuff, which is great. It's it's brought a great attention to fitness. But Olympic weightlifting, I feel, is 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 obviously a, a much more it's a, a different activity and I don't know very much about it at all. That's why you're here. What's what's different about it? What what is it about Olympic weightlifting make, that makes it um, unique? And what drew you to it? Oh, what drew me to it was um well I never ever heard of it before and I actually got like talented like identified randomly in the gym one day um, by Chris Chug who was a PE teacher at uh, Elizabeth College. And he literally just approached me while I was training and asked me a few questions about what I was doing. So at that time, I was actually like transitioning between sports. I was a national representative swimmer right through my teens, but then just the classic got glandular fever, chronic fatigue, and that ended my you know my swimming career. And I was trying to get back into it, um, and that's where I discovered the gym for the first time. And um, was just going to the gym every day and getting strong quite quickly. Like I, even as a swimmer, I was 53, 50 butterflies. I was already a very high anaerobic power athlete, even though being part of an endurance sport, I specialized in the sprints. And once I started going to the gym, you know, my squats started to go up quite, quite a lot, um, you know, putting on a lot of muscle mass and getting this quite powerful athletic physique. And then obviously Chris Chug saw it and was quite impressed and, came to me and just through talking, gave me his card and said, come see me next Saturday. I'll make you Australia's best weightlifter. That was his exact words. And I still had no idea what he was talking about. So I went and YouTubed it and saw it and thought, oh, this looks pretty cool. And I was looking for a sport and I was just thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll give it a try and went down there and had a go. And I think I snatched 35 kilos and clean jerked 45 on my first, first, um, first actual session ever with him and then I competed about six weeks later and from memory I snatched 60 kilos in clean jerk 75 and that actually qualified me for junior nationals and from there that was it 12 years with it but um what makes it different I think um it's this really cool great self like fulfillment feeling where you're part of something that not many people can do that was probably the desire of doing something that looked so complicated, looked so impressive, and being a part of this small group that could actually do something like that and do it well. But as a sport, like it's quite um, all sports are really, but with weightlifting, it's quite like an art. Like it's it's an art. Like you're lifting something that's extremely heavy. You're lifting it fast, and when you do it correctly, it feels effortless. And like you have to be perfect. And it's dynamic, like we're moving big weights, but unlike other sports like powerlifting and things like that, where you're just using brute strength, you know, our feet actually move the gra- move off the ground. So when we're lifting, we're literally jumping and being very dynamic and you have to be fast and athletic and flexible to be able to do this movement. And like I said, it's very heavy weight. You're moving it very fast and you're getting to a point that when you move it and you do it correctly, the bar feels effortless. First of all, what the hell is a snatch? What is that? Is that like lifting the bar to your chest? <laughs> that, like you just lift it up? Uh, that picture and there. And I say just, snatch. I say just. So oh, that's a snatch above the head. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That's a snatch. Yeah. So oh, they're both by the head. So there's snatch and cleaner jerk. So snatch is like from the floor straight above your head. 
So you, yeah. it's like you start off from the floor and just throw it up and catch it in that bottom position there, as you can see. And then the clean and jerk's like two lifts where you clean. So again, you're catching it like up on your shoulders in like a bottom of a squat position and then coming out of it, resetting, and then it's like a, a jerk. So you're popping it above your head in a split position. Um, gotcha. How is this is this sport becoming more popular? Do you think? Is it losing popularity as time goes on? What do you what's going on there? And I guess I have seen like anecdotally when I'm in gyms, like you know, it is as you say, like this niche thing where some people have learnt the technique somewhere, and you might see somebody do a movement that looks a bit like Olympic powerlift-ish. Um, but then again, I don't know what I'm looking at. Maybe it's a powerlifting move. <clears throat> but do you think there's any sort of mistakes that you see a lot of those early people? So for the guys that are thinking of coming in or the girls that are thinking about coming in and giving this a bit of a go and, and wanting to move that weight around and are drawn in by uh, the sport itself, what what sort of mistakes do you see these people making early on? What are the simple, quick things that they can do to boost their performance straight away? Um, well, I guess the first mistake I see is that it's poor technique and people aren't learning the technique correctly. So to overcome that, you have to get a coach. It's not something you can really self, like self-teach yourself, like self-taught or just by watching a YouTube. You need to have that instant feedback and you also need to get like a credible coach. So make sure that you have got someone who knows what they're doing because I have seen so many people who lift and they're lifting and it sounds mean, but hor- like horrible. Like their technique is terrible and it's like almost like hazardous. Um, and there's so what many little bad things and so many little like? cues. That- oh. What would a bad technique look <laughs> um, like? First one, um, the first thing that you see and I instantly see that I, the first thing I want to fix is people bending their arms. So when you're actually pulling the bar, um, you don't bend your arms until the very moment, the last moment when you finish the pull. So just before, and the elbows are just there to flip the bar above really they don't do anything so people always tend to yank the bar off and use their arms and just trying to muscle the bar up they're not using like the power and momentum and things like that or the speed that you're supposed to and it's okay to do that for a little while but if you actually want to progress they'll get stuck and you won't get any further because when you're using your arms and you look at like the kinetic chain of like a snatch and a clean and things like that as soon as you bend your elbows too early all the power and strength then goes from your arms or comes from your arms instead of coming from your traps and your hips and things like that. So you're always going to come up stuck very, very quickly and, and you won't be able to progress. So that's the first thing I see people doing is that they bend their elbows and they yank the bar and it becomes more of a muscle when it feels heavy. And that's the thing. If a, if a bar feels heavy, like it will always feel heavy. It will always feel heavy from the floor. You know, it's 100 plus kilos. That's going to feel heavy. But once you pass knee, everything's correct. From that moment the bar gets to your knee to the moment it gets above your head or lands on your shoulders if you're doing a clean, it feels effortless. Like it's like a moment of time and you can't feel it. And it's really quick. And it's like it's meant to be so fast that your brain can't actually like comprehend or commute what you're actually doing. And, you know, and again, like a lot of people, they're coming in, they might want to learn a snatch or clean jerk in like the fitness industry. Someone might demonstrate it to them. And they go, okay, go do it now. This is what it looks like, go do it. Where if you come to like a weightlifting specialist, you there are so many different elements that we teach someone first before they even try to attempt a snatch or a clean. And so if someone is interested in 
getting to getting into weightlifting the first thing you want to do is actually find like a good coach who's going to teach you and take the time to learn the technique because it's just I see so many people and now also myself becoming more into coach and one of my niches in my little online um, um, weightlifting coaching business that I'm running is it's more technical training so I have people who just come to me for a tune-up or they come to me with an error and then I help them fix that error and one of the first things that I get is bending the elbows way too soon. It's the first thing they do is they bend the elbows and yank the bar off the floor. What about nutrition? Like that's obviously the second prong to the attack and you've got your training and your nutrition, right? And obviously, oh, well, I guess yeah. there's three prongs, your training, nutrition, uh, nutrition and mindset. With And you've already spoken about the first two, but with nutrition – are there certain regimes, certain foods? I mean, everybody's different, but in terms of, I guess, people looking to become more powerful, becoming, um, you know, better at Olympic weightlifting and, you know, developing strength and power, all of those sort of things, what mistakes do you see people making with their nutrition or do you sort of more deal with the technical aspects of the lift itself? I think, like, when it comes to, like, an athlete, you got to think about nutrition as – eating for performance so there's like two sides to nutrition really when it comes to like I think anyway when it comes to like performance and the fitness world and stuff so in the fitness world people eat to you know because they want to they want to shred they want to get a six-pack they want like they want to look better all those sort of things they want to be healthier and so you eat a certain diet and you're going to the gym to get a certain look so you try and eat your your nutrition and around that. So you find people who are counting their macros, all that sort of stuff, making sure they hit everything that they need to be able to get this certain look. Whereas an athlete or someone who's trying to improve their performance, and this is how I've always seen it and how I was told and how I'm trying to teach my athletes now, instead of like counting macros and things like that, sort of look at your diet um, and then look at your performance. So if you're performing well, and, you know, you're feeling fast and you're getting stronger and you're not putting on excess weight, then, you know, that's that's how you're measuring your nutrition. So obviously you've got like your whole like your proteins and your carbohydrates and all those sort of guidelines. You still use them. I'm not saying to completely ignore them. But just to, but instead of looking at I have to eat this certain amount of macros of proteins and I have to have this certain amount of carbs and stuff, like when you're looking at performance, you might be hitting everything you're supposed to be, but – your performance not your performance might not be improving. So I think when you look at a nutrition for performance, you need to be looking at more how are you performing in the gym or how you're performing in training, and then sort of then reflect on your nutrition. So if you are not if you're not training very well, and you are losing a bit of weight or you're not gaining strength, then that tells you that you're not eat, like to me that will tell me that athlete that you're not eating enough so you need to try and eat more and get more energy into you if you're training really well and things are going great and you're you're getting stronger you're feeling faster you might see a bit of a change in body composition so you're seeing that you know you're increasing your muscle mass and stuff then you know that what you're eating is well is good um and then also as well like if you're starting to be a bit sluggish or putting weight on and you know all those sort of things as well then maybe you got to look at your diet and see if you're eating too much so, and I think that also just helps because I find like with weightlifting as well, it's, you know, it's a very um, in your face type of sport. Like you've got to be out there in front of everybody. And when you're on the platform, everyone's watching you. You have to wear a suit that can not, not isn't, isn't always flattering. It's quite a muscular strength sport. So, you know, you always have athletes who might 
you tend to find a lot of athletes have already got body image issues. So um, even some of myself, I always sort of validated myself by how big my quads looked. So, and all those sort of things. So I think to try and help an athlete and to help performance, it's sort of more of a a reflective approach more than like a percentage statistic um, approach. And that also I think helps, you know, with body image as well. If you're performing well and that relationship with food that you're using as fuel so you can perform well, I think that's much more healthier for an athlete than counting everything that you need to do and should be eating. Yeah, I guess there's there's always going to be, I guess, even more potential anxiety brought on by, you know, counting every, um, you know, piece of protein that you put in your mouth and measuring everything out in little measuring cups and, you know, setting out all your meals. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, as you said. I think it's got its place in, in probably like elite level aesthetics where you're worried about like every gram of body fat, all that sort of stuff. But I, I really like that. Um, advice like it's so simple but yeah just thinking about how you feel makes a lot of sense because at the end of the day how you feel is the mentality and the mentality drives the physicality right yeah Yeah. so if if you're feeling your if you're eating like you've got a certain nutrition so there's always like a baseline of what you should be eating so you, you know carbs and you can go to a nutritionist and they could give you like a baseline of what you should be eating what's considered healthy but then based on how you're training would depend on maybe you should be eating a bit more so if you're following a program a nutrition program and following it but you feel a bit depleted all the time and you feel like you've got lack of energy well then that's sort of that's saying well you're not eating enough because you know and it food is energy so let's increase the food and it's just like, you know, an extra cup of something. But instead of like, yeah, just counting all the calories all the time, if you're not performing well, eat more. If you're performing really well while you're eating, well, that's great. Just keep on doing what you're doing. And there's so much other stuff that athletes have to worry about. Um, and I think with nutrition, it's something that if you, can't, if, you don't ha- if you don't have to stress about it, then I think that's the one thing that you need to try and eliminate a stress from for an athlete. As an athlete, what are your thoughts around coffee, energy drinks, all of the things that seem to be increasing in popularity of late? Like you drive down the street, I look to my left and right and almost every person under 20 has either one of those like big cans of mother or like a Red Bull was probably the era that you and I um, grew up in. Do these have a place in sport? Like, did you ever utilize caffeine as a drug? Is that something that's tested? Because it's a bit of a, it's, yeah, there seems to be a bit of like mixed, mixed messaging happening around energy drinks. And they're kind of marketed towards people as, you know, like, I mean, look at Red Bull, like Red Bull gives you wings. Like, you know, does that mean that all Olympic weightlifters are smashing Red Bull before they roll out on stage? Um, I guess why well, it's a, per- a personal preference is, but you know, there are studies that show that caffeine does help your performance when it comes to energy, energy drinks and stuff. Look, I'll be the first to admit I lived off, I lived off energy drinks once I started getting more and more into elite levels uh, competing. Cause again, working child training, uni, everything as well. Like, you know, you rock up the training, you're so tired, you know, have a pre-workout or uh, an energy drink. So like, I used to, and I'm not, again, I'm not recommending it. I'm not saying it's healthy, but I was in a space where I would have a no-do and an energy drink before I train. And um, I really relied on caffeine. Um, but then again, at the same time, 
I didn't really have the normal athlete life. I was juggling so many other things. Um, but, you know, based on the research and nutritionists and the AIS and everything will, uh, will actually uh, will say, yes, caffeine, I think it's now don't completely quote me, but there are six milligrams of caffeine per body weight, per one kilo body weight, I think, but I won't, don't quote me on it, but there are research that there is a certain amount of caffeine that you can take per kilo of body weight that actually does help performance. But once you get over that, it starts to de, um, it actually starts to hinder your performance. So that's one reason why it's not banned. It used to be banned because uh, it is a stimulant and it does actually increase performance, but they found that once you actually took too much of it, you did have, they did see a decrease in performance. So it's not banned and you are free to use as much as you want um, because, as I said, there is a certain amount that is helpful, but then if you go over that certain amount, it's actually not helpful. And, yeah, I'm so, I, uh, I wouldn't – I don't get there and tell my athletes, go get a mother – go get caffeine. That's their personal preference. Um, if they ask me, I'll be like, yep, I used to use it. And, you know, people, and I'll be honest about it because people used to say to me, you know, how do you do it? Um, how do you juggle everything? And, you know, I'm not going to get there and say, Hey, if you eat all your green beans and everything and just sleep and train, everything's going to work out fine. No, no. Um, I was really high on the caffeine and used it a lot to get through my training and caffeine was very good. Is very good for like anaerobic athletes because you just get that extra sense of just moral alertness and you know it's all it is a stimulant it is a drug so you do get a bit addicted to it as well and it just becomes part of for me it came a part of my training I needed to have my caffeine before I trained and uh, especially like when I was training at very high elite level because at, at the end of the day for me I needed to find a way to keep myself more alert and being a clean athlete and being a very regular uh, drug tested athlete caffeine was that was my drug that was what i could use and i used it because i needed it i guess like with the energy drink thing too like i mean there are ways of sourcing that caffeine perhaps from more natural sources but i guess the convenience factor you know you can roll into just about any Mm. supermarket you've got like mothers bees red bulls on tap so Mm. that's probably why they're so popular but i guess like what you're saying like if someone was listening to this going well that sounds cool i might start upping my dose of caffeine like yeah maybe perhaps you go before you go reaching for your white mother can um that's also full of a bunch of sugars as well maybe uh think about some Mm. of the other ways you can get it but at the same time like Yeah. yeah as you're saying like if you are stressed for time and pressure and you've got all of that going on and that convenience actually means something to you and maybe it is worth going down that, down that route. But I, I think you can get the zero sugar ones now too, right? Yeah. And yeah. With, uh, with mothers and stuff, like, yeah, there's the sugar-free ones and stuff, but then you also you've got all the other chemicals and stuff that they do with, with sugar-free drinks and all that sort of stuff and but like with mothers and stuff, it's not just the caffeine, it's the other stimulants. Like I think with caffeine and um, ginseng, as well like putting those together um you know it gives you a bit of a high more alert and then things like um you know if you get a pre-workout you've got your creatine in there and your beta alanine and all those sort of things that also do help there are that are considered you know clean or okay products to take but obviously as well that you're at risk when you do take a product that's not natural so if you do take a product that's a pre-workout um the ais will not take any responsibility for someone who goes positive for a stimulant so the rules are when it comes to doping with any sort of supplement even if you take like a legal supplement so if I went to the chemist and got just a pre-workout from the chemist that's easily sourced it's not coming from the on you know from the internet or anything if I was to then 
uh, get a positive reading for something that some sort of stimulant that might have been in that product but wasn't actually declared on, on the nutritional value and stuff, it still is 100% the athlete's responsibility. There is like no leeway around that. So they're very, very strict with the doping so people can't make excuses. So there are things like things you can do. For example, there are products that have a logo called Informed Sport. They're not they're not saying like the AIS have listed them as a safer product, but not saying that they're completely safe. So there's no responsibility on anyone else but the athlete. So, you know, you're always at that risk as well if you do go down that path of protein shakes and pre-workouts. And I did. I'm not going to say that, no, I didn't do that. I did. I, I had a pre-workout and I would get the ones that are informed sport and I still took that risk because, you know, again, when you're sort of – going through work and training and that sort of stuff and you're trying to find something that's going to help you just get through the training get through your day and pre-workouts are fine to take you go for the informed sport um i would declare it when i would take it so when there was always a um an ams thing where i could always declare or if i did get um, drug tested i'll declare my products i'll have the barcodes all that which is recommended if you do decide to go down that path so there are ways that athletes can protect themselves if they are just like honestly just want to take a product that is clean try and find a natural route to try and help themselves train and um you know but at the end of the day it does fall down to the athlete it mm. all depends really like you can educate yourself but at the at always you're always at risk and it depends on whether you take that risk and take a supplement. Even if it says it's completely natural, you never, never, you don't always know. But there are things that you can do to gonna to show that you are just legitimately trying to take something that's going to help you. So, which is just a bit of extra caffeine or something like that. What about other training modes that may also benefit or work alongside Olympic weightlifting? So. I guess I'm thinking like would something like plyometrics, something like calisthenics. Yeah other strength-based work like your standard resistance, bench press, deadlifting, all that sort of stuff or other powerlifting mm. techniques, shoulder pressing, all that sort of stuff. Like is this – are these techniques that you brought into your training at all or were you literally – like is Olympic weightlifting training literally just the Olympic lifts themselves over and over or do you have these kind of supplementary exercises that work very well in unison? Yeah, so it's very sport-specific. So especially when you get to that elite level, like your training has to be specific to what your your goals and what your outcome is. So when we do Olympic lifting, your training every day is Olympic lifting. There's different variations. So with a snatch, you've got power snatch, snatch from hang, you know, different volumes, like sets of two, sets of three, singles, all those sort of stuff. Same with um, clean jerks. There's always variations. There's a power clean, clean from blocks, power jerk, split jerks from rack. Um, back squats, box squats, uh, clean pulls, snatch pulls. So there's a lot of variations that we do in our training. It's not just snatch, clean, you know, every day, all day. There's different variations to it. When it looks at, when you look at like accessories and stuff, so like I used to like once a week, I'd always go do like a, a back session. So having like a very strong back um, is definitely beneficial. So your, your lat pull downs, in, um, incline rows, that sort of stuff, uh, rack pulls, things like that. Never benched, never ever benched the whole entire time in my um, lifting career. Benching Why is in that? weightlifting is, it's a big no-no. So having like a really like tight chest and big biceps gets in the way of your um, range of motion. So if you have a very tight chest or your chest is too big from doing bench press, 
Um, you can't get into like a good snatch position or a clean position. It, it really restricts your overhead movements and things like that. So throughout my whole entire career, never benched. Didn't really do deadlifts as well because, again, we still want to be like powerful. We don't necessarily have to be like – we do have to be strong, don't get me wrong. We do have to be strong, but it's much more beneficial to be powerful. So I never, I didn't really ever like if I did a back squat, it was never like a huge grind where I was like stuck at the, just grinding it through and stuck halfway and it's taking me like, you know, 30 seconds to get out. It was always quick and powerful and smooth and always trying to hold on to that sort of dynamic power speed elements and if you know if you want to do speed if you wanted to do speed work instead of doing like an 80 percent snatch you would do them on 40 percent and do them really fast and those sort of things plyometrics yes um, a little bit but not too much again we're already quite dynamic and you would just sort of do a lighter snatch variation to do that sort of stuff um and yeah so it was very sport specific it was always like a snatch and clean jerk variations and you are, you are seeing different things like people doing like walking handstands and stuff like that now and um doing extra stuff like a bit of crossfit or something but at the end of the day really if you want to be elite at olympic lifting do olympic lifting yeah gotcha what's the difference between strength and power like you kind of mentioned yeah like the reason you don't do a bench press or a deadlift is because you want to develop power and not strength what how do you see the difference between the two? Oh god now you're trying to get science so science on me and I can't quite oh, remember. So, it, sorry, I'm not, really I'm, not, I'm not trying to be. I'm just curious, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess in a way like describing it um, and to, without getting too like, you know, science behind it. But when you look at like someone's powerful, they move fast. And so you're moving away, you're shifting away and you're moving it fast. So you look at a deadlift or a bench where it's really grindy, it's really slow, all that sort of stuff. Uh, we don't want to be that. We've got to we've got to develop momentum and speed and do something really fast and be dynamic. Like I said, when we snatch and we clean, we actually move our feet. So we actually like our feet actually lift from the ground and we like we're jumping. So we're jumping with like 120 plus kilos, you know, attached to us somewhere. And um, you know, you have to you've got like 100 kilos and you've got this really small window to get underneath it. So in theory, when you do the studies. Uh, a elite Olympic lifter will move two meters per second. So you've got this really big weight. And when you pull it, you're only pulling it to about maybe if you're at best, when you actually finish the pull, so the absolute top height of the bar maybe goes just above belly button towards your ribs, and then you have to move underneath it. So that's where that speed and power is. And that's where I, when I talk about Olympic lifting with people, we're not moving the bar. We're not moving the bar around our bodies. We're moving our bodies around the bar. So we're trying to get the the bar in the best positions and then we can move around it, not trying to actually manipulate and move the bar around us. We have to move around the bar. So you've got to hit these certain points and certain heights, um, certain heights at certain speeds to actually be successful. So there's actually a lot of science behind weightlifting and actually how to be successful to get underneath the bar as fast as you possibly can and be um, successful where, you know, when you do a deadlift or a bench, it's just grind it out a lot of the time so we you know we never did grindy stuff it was never just punch out a really heavy weight it's fast powerful dynamic yeah which is very very different to just lifting something understood do you think it's getting more popular olympic weightlifting or do you think that like with the rise of tiktok and instagram and stuff that it's sort of being lost with the aesthetic crew that you know wants to just pump up their biceps and call it a day what what um do you, what, what's your view on that do you think there's 
you've seen more interest recently or yeah i think actually because of social media there's actually been a huge interest um influx of interest with olympic lifting and with crossfit as well so I think before social media, people didn't really know much about it. Like I said, when I got told introduced to weightlifting, I had absolutely no idea what it was. And when I saw it, when I actually read and researched it on YouTube, um, I was really impressed. Where now, obviously, with anything with social media, people are just you know have so much access, continuous access of information. And and then and then I guess you know you see people who do look really fit and are doing snatches and clean and jerks. And you know, with social media, they tend to you know, glamorize it a little bit more. You see all the success and everything and people doing really well and loving it. So a lot of there has been a big interest in it. The question would be really is it like, you know, qual- um, quantity over quality is probably some of the issues that you would ask is about, yes, you might be getting <laughs> yeah. a huge increase of people doing Olympic lifting, but are we getting as much qual- as, are we getting as much quality? Now I know in like weightlifting in Australia, we're having a lot of young people come through, which is amazing, and they're doing quite well. A lot of the uh, the greats, I guess you could say, for the last 10 years, like including myself, are starting to retire, and we're sort of like in a bit of a space at the moment where we're waiting for those young ones to take our spots. There's still a couple around, but there's still a few years away before we start getting people doing really well at a senior national, like a senior international competition. But we're starting to get more juniors go and youths going to world championships and doing really well. That's there has been a huge increase, but there is just that question of about, you know, quantity over quality instead of the other way around. So uh, social media certainly has a huge impact on that because people see people doing it, seeing people look really cool when they do it, looking really fit people doing some really uh, insane party tricks and then also as well like you can just access a world championships now through Instagram and watching highlights so people see it they want to do it but they just don't really have haven't really had the understanding of what it's taken to get to that point they think they're just going to rock up to the gym put on their sports gear wear the right clothing and they're going to snatch 100 kilos in a few weeks and that's where you're seeing you know people just rushing and the big, that's one of the big mistakes there is People coming in doing it because it looks awesome, but haven't really been taught correctly from the big from the beginning. It seems to be that way across like lots of sports and almost like most areas of life. It seems it's almost like social media is kind of because it's given us so much access. We see everything glamorized. We see the best versions of everything, and like I always give the example to my mates, like when you go on Instagram and you watch some guy do wide grip pull-ups like you know you'll see like there'll be some nice cool like music going he's like he's had his fake tan on he's maybe shaved himself or something like that which is all part of the look right and then he gets up and he does like the chin-ups and you don't even see him go to failure like you just see him maybe in the first like third or fourth rep and he's looking really clean it's really controlled there's no shaking there's no quivering there's no beads of sweat it looks good to look at and then it's sort of people, young guys, girls, they look at it and they go, geez, I really want to do that. I think the same, as you said, it sounds like the same sort of thing is happening with powerlifting. Like, yeah, there's so much work that goes behind the scenes but like when people see like some guy or girl lift some insane amount of weight and it's done with like some cool music or some sound effects or they're in a cool stadium wearing some cool clothes or anything like that, it's – it's pu- it's publicity, and you're going to get that attention. But without, it's kind of like the double-edged sword of social media: the exposure, but then you've got um, the lack of exposure in terms of the realities behind that, because they see 
they're exposed to the end product, not exposed to what it takes to achieve the end product. So they're they're seeing the destination, yeah. not the process. I think that's kind of like, yeah, I think that's probably one of the big things with social media. And yet sometimes like, okay, I like some of the people I follow, I actually follow for that reason. So when I follow them, I'm really impressed by it. not not so much the the glamorizing of it all, but the I actually follow the guys that are a little bit more real. Like, you know, they're sweating, they're on the mic, they can hardly breathe like after their set and they're trying to talk to you. And like that to me, you know, that's just me. I, I appreciate the realities of the situation. But yeah, it's interesting that that's starting to flow through to the quality of people that you have coming through your doors as well. I was going to say, I think as well with that is when I talk about poor technique and thinking about that as a concept where you're seeing much more poor technique on social media so it's becoming like the norm. So people just think yeah. it's normal to look a certain way with weightlifting because you're seeing more and more people doing it incorrectly. So then you see someone who sees it on Instagram or on TikTok or whatever, then they go try it and they're using someone else's technique that's incorrect. So it's just like a flow and you're not yes. seeing the people who are doing it correctly as well. What's next for you? Are you in the coaching space now pretty full on? What is the future looking like for you and Olympic weightlifting? Where do you see yourself going? So I guess, as I mentioned before, I have retired from like elite level Olympic lifting. I did start getting into more coaching and that started to grow a lot. I started doing like an online coaching business because that's what everyone does these days. Um, But as I mentioned before, I had a bit more of a different niche to it where it wasn't necessarily just coaching. It was more like, hey, if you've got a problem, come to me, I'll fix it sort of thing and using like my credentials as a weightlifter and my eye as well. So I was very lucky that I was actually with my coach that I had for um, the last five, six years of my career. He was like a, just a you know weightlifting technician, absolutely, you know, broke down everything, wrote a whole book about it, about breaking down the Olympic lifts. So I learned what I know from him. So I've been able to pass, you know, he's been able to pass down his knowledge to me. Um, and I do have a good eye for correct technique and also having a physical education background, background I can also teach it quite well. Um, so that was my first part. Um, I also started to develop, I've got a very big interest in uh, women's health and training as well. So I started running like a women's squad in Olympic lifting, which again was just to be able to create like a, a space for women to train um, amongst other women and that sort of thing and to give opportunities for women to train together and also provide education on women's health and training. At this point in time of my, of my life, I've sort of slowed down with the coaching. So I've got my little coaching group that I've got and obviously people still come and see me and I'm always available to help out. But I've sort of slowed that down a little bit, mainly because recently I've started to trans actually try and transfer all my power that I've speed and power that I've developed over the last 12 years and trying out a new sport. So I'm actually giving shot put a go track and field and specializing in shot put. So there's still a part of me that's not quite finished with being an athlete. So um, as I said, I did retire um, because I fell pregnant again with my second son. So uh, once he was born, I didn't really have the intention of maybe going back to being an elite athlete, but I still just haven't felt like I'm completely finished yet, Um, whether that's just more of like a mental thing because it's been such a a huge part of my life. I can't quite answer that just yet, but there is a bit of talent there and the interest and potential in this area. So I am going to see where that 
goes, but that sort of has put a bit of a halt on the focus that I had with my coaching as well. So I've sort of, I've, I've created a good base and I've got the people that I'm focusing on and I'm, and, you know, be able to put all my effort as much as I can with them. But there's also little things as well. So I have connections to the AIS and I do see myself in, you know, five to 10 years being more like getting into like leadership. So I've been, I've been part of many um, leadership roles and programs and groups through the AIS and putting myself out there and just making my name my name known as someone in like in five years time I do see myself being someone who's working with athletes in a space and trying to change in sport in some way particularly in helping women and supporting women in sport and education so ideally I'd see myself in five years time working with all ranges of athletes and providing education and women's health and helping athletes develop um educate themselves in their own health that's going to help their training because I do feel like that's a space that's severely neglected and needs more um, needs a more focus on. Well Katie this has been a great conversation if people want to get in touch and either get trained by you or get some pointers on their weightlifting where can they go and how can they find you? Well yeah so I do run two weightlifting classes a week at Grit Fitness in Moona. Um, so on a Tuesday and Friday at 5.30, I run a class which has a main focus on technique. So it's, it's anyone who wants to learn. So if you've never done weightlifting before um, coming in or, or those who do do Olympic lifting and they just want to get better, uh, improve their technique and just learn a little bit more about the technical side of weightlifting, then I do run um, Olympic lifting sessions at Grit Fitness on a Tuesday and Friday from 5.30 to 7. I still have got space for people who actually maybe want some more technical coaching um, through the um, KT weightlifting, so KTW um, Olympic lifting. So I do have a small group of people and there are still some spots there, but I'm always happy to help people. Um, so you can just like find me on my Instagram or just come into Grit Fitness and come see me there because I'm there every week. If you do follow my Instagram, I've always got the main focuses that I'm focusing on that week in those sessions. So that's a place, that's probably the first place to start. And then from there, I'm always, I'm always happy and willing to help out anyone. Thanks, Katie. Well, I'll add all of your information, including your uh, Instagram details in the show notes and the description on Spotify and wherever you guys are listening to the show. Katie, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up and listen to your amazing career. Um, you're clearly a wealth of knowledge and information on Olympic weightlifting. And, you know, to tell you the truth, it's kind of just that picture in the background is enough to inspire me to uh, get um, maybe just bring bring a, bring a couple of little Olympic weightlifting techniques into my routine. So I might, um, if it's okay with you, I might feel myself doing something and you can tell me how bad I look and um, we'll go from there. Totally fine. More than happy to help. Well, there you go, crew. I think what I like the most about Katie is that she isn't one of those athletes who's super pretentious and has no time for anything else. She's very real and gives the sense that she's just like you or I, but obviously had a very huge vision that she got to work on very early in her athletic career. My big takeaway from Katie was that there's an element of negativity in thinking that when you're not training, somebody else could be. I've always been somebody to believe that, and it's motivated me, I must say, through many a cold winter's training sessions. 
But I ask myself now, after talking with Katie, to what end? Katie enforces the need to stay level and centered through simply focusing on your own performance rather than the performance of others that could lead to mental detriment throughout the athletic career. Crew, if you took something valuable away from this episode, please be sure to share it with a friend or family member, and don't forget to subscribe to the show on whatever you're listening to us from. Also, crew, roll over to Instagram at Mr. TM Walters for key insights and takeaways from all of our episodes, plus you get to see our ugly faces as well. In the meantime, crew, have a fantastic week. And as always, if there is a profession, business or career that you'd like us to have a chat with, then please don't be scared and drop us a DM on Instagram at Mistake Mastery. Have a fantastic week, crew, and we'll see you again next week. Bye for now.